Section 4 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 7, Part 2, Countess de Saint-Geran by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4 The child was then seven years old. His charming manners grew with his age, and the Count and Countess felt their love for him increase. They caused him to be taught dancing and fencing, put him into breeches and hose and a page's suit of their livery, in which capacity he served them. The Marquis turned his attack to this quarter. He was doubtless preparing some plot as criminal as the preceding, when justice overtook him for some other great crimes of which he had been guilty. He was arrested one day in the street when conversing with one of the saint Geran footmen, and taken to the conciergerie of the Palace of Justice. Whether owing to these occurrences or to grounds for suspicion before mentioned, certain reports spread in the Bourbonnais embodying some of the real facts. Portions of them reached the ears of the Count and Countess, but they had only the effect of renewing their grief without furnishing a clue to the truth. Meanwhile, the Count went to take the waters at Vichy. The Countess and Madame de Bouille followed him, and there they chanced to encounter Louise Goyard, the midwife. This woman renewed her acquaintance with the house, and in particular often visited the Marchioness de Boya. One day the Countess, unexpectedly entering the Marchioness's room, found them both conversing in an undertone. They stopped talking immediately and appeared disconcerted. The Countess noticed this without attaching any importance to it and asked the subject of their conversation. "'Oh, nothing,' said the Marchioness. "'But what is it?' insisted the countess, seeing that she blushed. The marchioness, no longer able to evade the question and feeling her difficulties increase, replied, Dom Louise is praising my brother for bearing no ill will to her. Why? said the countess, turning to the midwife. Why should you fear any ill will on the part of my husband? I was afraid, said Louise Goyard awkwardly, that he might have taken a dislike to me on account of all that happened when you expected to be confined. The obscurity of these words and embarrassment of the two women produced a lively effect upon the countess, but she controlled herself and let the subject drop. Her agitation, however, did not escape the notice of the marchioness, who the next day had horses put to her coach and retired to Hay Estate of Lavoine. This clumsy proceeding strengthened suspicion. The first determination of the countess was to arrest Louise Guillard, but she saw that in so serious a matter every step must be taken with precaution. She consulted the count and the countess dowager. They quietly summoned the midwife to question her without any preliminaries. She prevaricated and con contradicted herself over and over again. Moreover, her state of terror alone sufficed to convict her of a crime. They handed her over to the law, and the Count de Saint-Geran filed an information before the vice-seneschal of Moulin. The midwife underwent a first interrogatory. She confessed the truth of the accouchement, but she added that the Countess had given birth to a stillborn daughter, which she had buried under a stone near the step of the barn in the back yard. The judge, accompanied by a physician and a surgeon, repaired to the place where he found neither stone, nor fetus, nor any indications of an interment. They searched unsuccessfully in other places. When the dowager countess heard this statement, she demanded that this horrible woman should be put on her trial. 
The civil lieutenant, in the absence of the criminal lieutenant, commenced the proceedings. In a second interrogation, Louise Guillard positively declared that the countess had never been confined. In a third, that she had been delivered of a mole. In a fourth, that she had been confined of a male infant, which Ballieu had carried away in a basket. In a fifth, in which she answered from the dock, she maintained that her evidence of the countess's accouchement had been extorted from her by violence. She made no charges against either Madame de Bouille or the Marquis de Saint-Maison. On the other hand, no sooner was she under lock and key than she dispatched her son, Guillemin, to the Marchioness to inform her that she was arrested. The Marchioness recognized how threatening things were, and was in a state of consternation. She immediately sent the Sieur de la Foresterie, her steward, to the lieutenant-general, her counsel, a mortal enemy of the count, that he might advise her in this conjuncture, and suggest a means for helping the matron without appearing openly in the matter. The lieutenant's advice was to squash the proceedings and obtain an injunction against the continuance of the preliminaries to the action. The marchioness spent a large sum of money and obtained this injunction, but it was immediately reversed and the bar to the suit removed. La Foresterie was then ordered to pass to Riom, where the sisters Quinet lived, and to bribe them heavily to secrecy. The elder one, on leaving the marchioness's service, had shaken her fist in her face, feeling secure with the secrets in her knowledge, and told her that she would repent having dismissed her and her sister, and that she would make a clean breast of the whole affair, even were she to be hung first. These girls then sent word that they wished to enter her service again, that the countess had promised them handsome terms if they would speak, and that they had even been questioned in her name by a Capuchin superior, but that they had said nothing in order to give time to prepare an answer for them. The marchioness found herself obliged to take back the girls. She kept the younger and married the elder to Delisle, her house steward. But La Foresterie, finding himself in this network of intrigue, grew disgusted at serving such a mistress and left her house. The marchioness told him on his departure that if he were so indiscreet as to repeat a word of what he had learned from the Quinet girls, she would punish him with a hundred poniard stabs from her major domo de Lisle. Having thus fortified her position, she thought herself secure against any hostile steps. But it happened that a certain prudent burgher, gentleman page to the Marquis de Saint-Maison, who enjoyed his master's confidence and went to see him in the conciergerie, where he was imprisoned, threw some strange light on this affair. His master had narrated to him all the particulars of the accouchement of the countess and of the abduction of the child. "'I am astonished, my lord,' replied the page, "'that having so many dangerous affairs on hand, "'you did not relieve your conscience of this one.' "'I intend,' replied the Marquis, "'to restore this child to his father.' I have been ordered to do so by a capuchin, to whom I confessed having carried off from the midst of the family without their knowing it, a grandson of a marshal of France and a son of a governor of a province. The Marquis had at that time permission to go out from the prison occasionally on his parole. This will not surprise anyone acquainted with the ideas which prevailed at that period on the honor of a nobleman, even the greatest criminal. The Marquis, profiting by this facility, took the page to see a child of about seven years of age, fair and with a beautiful countenance. "'Page,' said he, "'look well at this child, so that you may know him again when I shall send you to inquire about him.' 
He then informed him that this was the Count de saint Geran's son, whom he had carried away. Information of these matters coming to the ears of justice, decisive proofs were hoped for, but this happened just when other criminal informations were lodged against the Marquis, which left him helpless to prevent the exposure of his crimes. Police officers were dispatched in all haste to the conciergerie, where they were stopped by the jailers who told them that the Marquis, feeling ill, was engaged with a priest who was administering the sacraments to him. As they insisted on seeing him, the warders approached the cell, the priest came out crying that persons must be sought to whom the sick man had a secret to reveal, that he was in a desperate state, and said he had just poisoned himself. All entered the cell. Monsieur de Saint-Maison was writhing on a pallet in a pitiable condition, sometimes shrieking like a wild beast, sometimes stammering disconnected words. All that the officers could hear was, Monsieur le Comte, uh, call... The Countess de Saint-Geran, let them come. The officers earnestly begged him to try to be more explicit. The Marquis had another fit. When he opened his eyes, he said, Send for the Countess. Let them forgive me. I wish to tell them everything. The police officers asked him to speak. One even told him that the Count was there. The Marquis feebly murmured, I am going to tell you. Then he gave a loud cry and fell back dead. It thus seemed as if fate took pains to close every mouth from which the truth might escape. Still, this avowal of a deathbed revelation to be made to the Count de saint Geran and the deposition of the priest who had administered the last sacraments formed a strong link in the chain of evidence. The judge of first instruction, collecting all the information he had got, made a report the weight of which was overwhelming. The carters, the nurse, the domestic servants, all gave accounts consistent with each other. The rout and the various adventures of the child were plainly detailed, from its birth till its arrival at the village of Descouteau. Justice, thus tracing crime to its sources, had no option but to issue a warrant for the arrest of the Marchioness de Bouille but it seems probable that it was not served owing to the strenuous efforts of the Count de saint Geran, who could not bring himself to ruin his sister, seeing that her dishonor would have been reflected on him. The Marchioness hid her remorse in solitude and appeared again no more. She died shortly after, carrying the weight of her secret till she drew her last breath. The judge of Moulin at length pronounced sentence on the midwife, whom he declared arraigned and convicted of having suppressed the child born to the countess, for which he condemned her to be tortured and then hanged. The matron lodged an appeal against this sentence, and the case was referred to the conciergerie. No sooner had the count and countess seen the successive proofs of the procedure than tenderness and natural feelings accomplished the rest. They no longer doubted that their page was their son. They stripped him at once of his livery and gave him his rank and prerogatives under the title of the Count de la Palice. Meanwhile, a private person named Sequeville informed the Countess that he had made a very important discovery, that a child had been baptized in 1642 at saint jean en greve and that a woman named Marie Pigoreau had taken a leading part in the affair. Thereupon, inquiries were made, and it was discovered that this child had been nursed in the village of Torcy. The Count obtained a warrant which enabled him to get evidence before the judge of Torcy. Nothing was left undone to elicit the whole truth. He obtained a warrant through which he obtained more information and published a monitory. 
The elder of the Quinet girls on this told the Marquis de Canaillac that the Count was searching at a distance for things very near to him. The truth shone out with great luster through these new facts which gushed from all this fresh information. The child, exhibited in the presence of a legal commissary to the nurses and witnesses of Torcy, was identified as much by the scars left by the midwife's nails on his head as by his fair hair and blue eyes. This ineffaceable vestige of the woman's cruelty was the principal proof. The witnesses testified that La Pigoreau, when she visited this child with a man who appeared to be of condition, always asserted that he was the son of a great nobleman who had been entrusted to her care, and that she hoped he would make her fortune, and that of those who had reared him. The child's godfather, Paul Marmieux, a common laborer, the grocer Ragnet, who had charge of the two thousand livres, the servant of La Pigoreau, who had heard her say that the count was obliged to take this child, the witnesses who proved that La Pigoreau had told them that the child was too well born to wear a page's livery, all furnished convincing proofs, but others were forthcoming. It was at La Pigoreau's that the Marquis de saint Marzon, living then at the Hôtel de saint Geron, went to see the child, kept in her house as if it were hers. Prudent Berger, the Marquis's page, perfectly well remembered La Pigoreau, and also the child whom he had seen at her house and whose history the Marquis had related to him. Finally, many other witnesses heard in the course of the case, both before the three chambers of nobles, clergy, and the tiers etat, and before the judges of Torcy, Cusset, and other local magistrates, made the facts so clear and conclusive in favor of the legitimacy of the young count that it was impossible to avoid impeaching the guilty parties. The count ordered the summons in person of La Picureau, who had not been compromised in the original preliminary proceedings. This drastic measure threw the intriguing woman on her beam ends, but she strove hard to right herself. The widow, Duchesse de Ventador, daughter by her mother's second marriage of the Countess Dowager of saint Geron, and half-sister of the Count and the Countess de Lude, daughter of the Marchioness de Bille, from whom the young Count carried away the saint Geron inheritance, were very warm in the matter and spoke of disputing the judgment. La Pigoreau went to see them and joined in concert with them. Then commenced the famous lawsuit which long occupied all France, and in parallel in some respects, but not in the time occupied in the hearing, to the case heard by Solomon in which one child was claimed by two mothers. The Marquis de Saint-Maison and Madame de Bouille being dead, were naturally no parties to the suit, which was fought against the Saint-Geron family by La Pigoreau and Mesdames de Lude and de Ventador. These ladies no doubt acted in good faith at first at any rate in refusing to believe the crime, for if they had originally known the truth, it is incredible that they could have fought the case so long and so obstinately. They first of all went to the aid of the midwife who had fallen sick in prison. They then consulted together and resolved as follows, that the accused should appeal against criminal proceedings, that La Pigoreau should lodge a civil petition against the judgments which ordered her arrest and the confronting of witnesses, that they should appeal against the abuse of obtaining and publishing monitories and lodge an interpleader against the sentence of the judge of first instruction, who had condemned the matron to capital punishment. And that finally, to carry the war into the enemy's camp, La Pigoreau should impugn the maternity of the countess, claiming the child as her own, and that the ladies should depose that the countess's accouchement was an imposture invented to cause it to be supposed that she had given birth to a child. 
For more safety and apparent absence of collusion, Mesdames de Lude and de Ventador pretended to have no communication with La Pigoreau. About this time, the midwife died in prison from an illness which vexation and remorse had aggravated. After her death, her son, Guillemin, confessed that she had often told him that the countess had given birth to a son whom Balieu had carried off, and that the child entrusted to Balieu at the Chateau Saint-Geron was the same as the one recovered. The youth added that he had concealed this fact so long as it might injure his mother, and he further stated that the ladies de Ventadour and de Lude had helped her in prison with money and advice, another strong piece of presumptive evidence. The petitions of the accused and the interpleadings of Mesdames de Lude and de Ventador were discussed in seven hearings, before three courts convened. The suit proceeded with all the languor and chicanery of the period. After long and specious arguments, the attorney-general Bignon gave his decision in favor of the Count and Countess of saint Geron, concluding thus. The court rejects the civil appeal of La Pigureau, and all the opposition and appeals of the appellants and the defendants, condemns them to fine and in costs, and seeing that the charges against La Pigoreau were of a serious nature, and that a personal summons had been decreed against her, orders her committal, recommending her to the indulgence of the court. By a judgment given in a sitting at the Tournelle by Monsieur de Memez on the 18th of August 1657, the appellant ladies and the defendant's opposition was rejected with fine and costs. La Pigoreau was forbidden to leave the city and suburbs of Paris under penalty of summary conviction. The judgment in the case followed the rejection of the appeal. This reverse at first extinguished the litigation of Madame de Lude and de Ventador, but it soon revived more briskly than ever. These ladies, who had taken La Pigoreau in their coach to all the hearings, prompted her in order to procrastinate to file a fresh petition, in which she demanded the confrontment of all the witnesses to the pregnancy and the confinement. On hearing this petition, the court gave on the 28th of August, 1658, a decree ordering the confrontment, but on condition that for three days previously La Pigoreau should deliver herself a prisoner in the conciergerie. This judgment, the consequences of which greatly alarmed La Pigoreau, produced such an effect upon her that, after having weighed the interest she had in the suit, which she would lose by flight, against the danger to her life if she ventured her person into the hands of justice, she abandoned her false plea of maternity and took refuge abroad. This last circumstance was a heavy blow to Madame de Lude and de Ventador, but they were not at the end of their resources and their obstinacy. Contempt of court being decreed against La Pigoreau and the case being got up against the other defendants, the Count de Saint-Geron left for the Bourbonnais to put in execution the order to confront the witnesses. Scarcely had he arrived in the province when he was obliged to interrupt his work to receive the king and the queen mother, who were returning from Lyon and passing through Moulin. He presented the Count de la Palice to their majesties as his son. They received him as such. But during the visit of the king and queen, the Count de saint Geron fell ill, over-fatigued, no doubt, by the trouble he had taken to give them a suitable reception, over and above the worry of his own affairs. During his illness, which only lasted a week, he made in his will a new acknowledgment of his son, naming his executors Monsieur de Barriere, intendant of the province, and the Sieur Vialet, treasurer of France, desiring them to bring the lawsuit to an end. His last words were for his wife and child his only regret that he had not been able to terminate this affair. He died on the 31st of January, 1659. 
The maternal tenderness of the countess did not need stimulating by the injunctions of her husband, and she took up the suit with energy. The ladies de Ventadour and de Lude obtained by default letters of administration as heiresses without liability, which were granted out of the Châtelet. At the same time, they appealed against the judgment of the lieutenant-general of the Bourbonnais, giving the tutelage of the young count to the countess's mother and his guardianship to Sir de Bonpré. The countess on her side interpleaded an appeal against the granting of letters of administration without liability, and did all in her power to bring back the case to the Tournelle. The other ladies carried their appeal to the high court, pleading that they were not parties to the lawsuit in the Tournelle. It would serve no purpose to follow the obscure labyrinth of legal procedure of that period, and to recite all the marches and countermarches which legal subtlety suggested to the litigants. At the end of three years, on the 9th of April, 1661, the countess obtained a judgment by which the king in person, quote, assuming to his own decision the civil suit pending at the Tournelle, as well as the appeals pled by both parties, and the last petition of Madame's de Lude and de Ventador, sends back the whole case to the three assembled chambers of the States-General to be by them decided on its merits either jointly or separately, as they may deem fit, end quote. The countess thus returned to her first battlefield. Legal science produced an immense quantity of manuscript, barristers and attorneys greatly distinguishing themselves in their calling. After an interminable hearing and pleadings longer and more complicated than ever, which however did not bamboozle the court, judgment was pronounced in conformity with the summing up of the attorney general thus that passing over the petition of Madame Marie de la Guiche and Eleanor de Bria on the grounds, etc., etc., evidence taken, etc., appeals, judgments, annulled, etc., with regard to the petition of the late Claude de la Guiche and Suzanne de Longuanet, dated 12 August 1658, ordered that the rule be made absolute, which being done, Bernhard de la Guiche is pronounced, maintained, and declared the lawfully born and legitimate son of Claude de la Guiche and Suzanne de Longuenay, in possession and enjoyment of the name and arms of the House of Guiche, and of all the goods left by Claude de la Guiche's father, and Marie de la Guiche and Eleanor de Bouille are interdicted from interfering with him. The petitions of Eleanor de Bouille and Marie de la Guiche dated 4th June 1664, 4th August 1665, 6th January, 10th February, 12th March, 15th April, and 2nd June, 1666, are dismissed with costs. Declared that the defaults against La Pigoreau are confirmed, and that she, arraigned and convicted of the offenses imputed to her, is condemned to be hung and strangled at a gallows erected in the Place de Greve in this city, if taken and apprehended. Otherwise, an effigy at a gallows erected in the Place de Greve aforesaid, that all her property subject to confiscation is seized and confiscated from whomsoever may be in possession of it, on which property and other not subject to confiscation is levied a fine of 800 Paris livres to be paid to the king, and applied to the maintenance of prisoners in the conciergerie of the Palace of Justice, and to the costs. Possibly a more obstinate legal contest was never waged on both sides, but especially by those who lost it, the countess, who played the part of the true mother in the Bible, had the case so much to heart that she often told the judges when pleading her cause that if her son were not recognized as such, she would marry him and convey all her property to him. 
the young Count de la Palice became Count de Saint-Geran through the death of his father, married in 1667, Claude Francois Madeleine de Ferigny, only daughter of Francois de Montfreville and of Marguerite Jourdain de Carbon de Canacy. He had only one daughter, born in 1688, who became a nun. He died at the age of 55 years, and thus this illustrious family became extinct. End of section 4 End of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 7, Part 2, Countess de Saint-Geran by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.